This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking about desert bighorn sheep. We'll hear about their biology and how the increasing recreation in the Moab area may or may not be impacting them with conservation scientist Joel Berger. Hi, I'm Joel Berger. I'm a professor at Colorado State University, currently living in Castle Valley, Utah on sabbatical. And I'm also a senior scientist for a group out of the Bronx Zoo called the Wildlife Conservation Society. I'm interested in what got you interested in, in wildlife conservation to begin with? I grew up in Los Angeles, which I don't like to admit, but I left when I was about 20. I got interested in wildlife and deserts and, at that point, remote areas outside of L.A. I used to ride dirt bikes. I used to go hiking. I, my brother had a dune buggy. We went tooling around in that. But the more I saw roadrunners disappearing, desert tortoises being shot, coyotes hanging from fences, I thought, maybe there's another way to think about how we recreate and yet still appreciating not only motorcycle riding and dune buggying, but also mountain biking and hiking. So you sounds like you grew up, you know, kind of in a desert environment, but it seems like over your career, you've, you've gotten more interested in wildlife and habitats in extreme places. And can you, can you talk about that progression and then also what, what extreme means to you and why it's something you've wanted to focus on? So after I left LA, I, became interested in science because I thought science was a good endeavor that I could help work with and maybe inspire another generation and yet at the same time spend time in nature and appreciate nature. And so across my career, I went from studying reasonably well-known species like bison, as well as black rhinos over in Africa, as well as wild yaks up in Tibetan highlands, I thought that some of the unsung species, the species that don't have a following, species that are not elephants or whales where a lot of NGOs invest a lot of money, I thought some of these other species maybe deserve some sort of a chance. And so it sounds like, yeah, these are species that people aren't thinking about as much that are living in extreme places. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in this, like this relationships of extremes, being here in the desert, knowing that it's extreme. What does extreme mean for species? What, what, what does an extreme place mean for how species can make it there? When I think about extreme, I think about some of the factors that limit where animals live. And so some of my studies have been at the highest latitudes we have in North America, where the land ends and the ocean, the Arctic Ocean begins. And I focused on the Arctic's largest mammal. They're called musk oxen. And we worked with musk oxen for about 10 years, both in Arctic Alaska, as well as in the Northeast Asian Arctic, which is Russia, of course. Extreme also could be the highest of elevations. And so working with wild yaks or a couple of the other species that occur on the Tibetan highlands, they go up to 18 or 19,000 feet. And so that's pretty much the limit of life and where we can get air that sustains with food enough for these large mammals to persist. And at some point, 
We can also, though, think about extreme, and as you had said, Christina, deserts. Death Valley, on average, gets about two inches of precipitation a year. The Namib Desert in southwestern Africa gets about a half an inch of precipitation a year and still can support giraffes and rhinos remarkably. And so I think across a wide array of species and ecosystems where, where species have adapted and have made it, and my fascination with those kind of species and trying to understand them and then bring that to the forefront where we can do better conservation is the kinds of things I focused on the last couple of decades. So you mentioned deserts and, and you're here in, in this area specifically to work on desert bighorn sheep. Can you tell me of what got you interested in asking questions about desert bighorns specifically? I'm gonna draw a circle. So when I was finishing my graduate work, my PhD work was on bighorn sheep, and I worked in the Sonoran Desert, I worked in the Great Basin Desert, and then I worked with a population up in central British Columbia. And so I hadn't worked on desert sheep for about 30 years, and here I am back. And the reason I'm back is in part because I was working with muskox over in Russia, I was arrested a couple of years ago there, and then I was not allowed to come back into Russia for a number of years. And so when that happened, I was depressed. I wasn't teaching the spring semester at Colorado State University, so I came out to the Moab area, and I was trying to regroup and reconstitute my mind and my sense. Um, And I kept noticing places where there should have been bighorns, but they were not. And so I got interested in returning to my roots and trying to understand what makes bighorn sheep tick and why they can habituate and adapt in places where maybe they can't. Yeah, so I'd actually love to hear a little bit more about desert bighorn sheep. I I think of them as being here, but I don't know a ton about their biology or kind of, of what they're doing out there. So can you you know, give a brief rundown of of what's going on with desert bighorn sheep as kind of like a species? So desert bighorn sheep are pretty much the smallest of the wild sheep that we have in North America. Females will weigh 100 pounds, sometimes a little bit more. Males can go to maybe 175, maybe slightly more. But further north, they're, they're larger because it's colder and they have to deal with cold. Here, desert bighorns are in pretty small groups. You know, it's unusual to find more than a half dozen, but occasionally they can be up to 15 to 20. But usually they'll be in pretty small groups, and that's because the food resources are widely distributed and pretty scant. So they work pretty hard to make a living. Springtime is important because females are pregnant, and the last three months of human pregnancy is when the fetus is growing the most. And so the mother, us human mothers, but same for bighorn sheep, they have to eat a lot to sustain the growth of those fetuses. And that's what's happening here in the deserts. That's also when the spring grasses start to emerge. And this is also a period where we have most of our visitation in this area. And so there's a potential conflict set up But I say potential because we don't know much about it. We don't know much about how sheep are responding, and we don't know much about how people are behaving and what we can do differently. Or maybe there's nothing that needs to be done because things are working reasonably well. 
So interesting. Can you give me a sense of, if possible, if we know where bighorn sheep are, how many there are, and like how that relates to how they've been in the past and what thinking about, you know, conservation and and bighorn sheep distribution. Can you break down for me what we know about their distribution and how they're doing as a species? So the state of Utah, Division of Wildlife Resources, has been extremely vigilant and protective of bighorn sheep in Utah, which is, of course, a good thing because it's a resource held in common by all Utahns as well as, at a broader level, Americans on public lands. So bighorn sheep used to be widely distributed throughout Utah, not in gravel deserts, but any place where there's suitable habitat, which is usually cliffs, mountain areas if it's not too forested. But starting around the turn of the century, when Utah was certainly being colonized by Europeans, bighorn sheep took a bit of a plummet. They took a big hit in part because domestic sheep grazing and cattle grazing were important to sustain us humans. And as a consequence, diseases were transmitted to bighorns. Bighorns were hunted reasonably ruthlessly. And now, depending on what kind of a scale we want to use for area, we know that bighorns inhabit only a few isolated spots in Utah, or they did into the 1970s. Then the state got really interested and started reintroducing bighorns back into natural habitats. And so in this area, to follow up on your questions, Canyonlands has a reasonably decent-sized population, but we don't know what the size is. Arches has some bighorns, so I'm doing national parks first. And then also um, Capitol Reef has some bighorns. Glen Canyon has some bighorns in San Juan County, south of the San Juan River. The Navajo Nation has bighorn sheep. And if we look across BLM lands, we know that just here to the west of us in Moab, what's called the potash herd, there's a herd there and it exchanges individuals working across some of the lands owned by the salt mines, also um, onto Park Service lands, and BLM lands. And BLM has done a remarkable job trying to post signage so that people become aware that they need to tread a little bit more carefully in these areas where there are bighorns. So you you listed a lot of different land ownership types, and so it, it doesn't sound to me like all of the herds of bighorn sheep are concentrated in the parks. It sounds like they're relatively distributed over the southeast Utah region. Would that be an accurate thing to say? Or do we see congregations of them in, in different management area types? So your comment is dead on, Christina. Bighorns are widely distributed across southeastern Utah. There's some pretty good coordinated management that goes on with avenues and conversations open between the state of Utah and then with federal land managers. And then within federal land managers, there's, of course, differences as to how land and wildlife are managed. So Park Service manages wildlife, Forest Service lands, and BLM lands manage the habitat, but not the wildlife. And then the state of Utah manages the wildlife outside of national parks. Is there coordination, too, then with the Navajo Nation in this area with with thinking about bighorn management, or or is that its own separate entity? So the Navajo Nation, of course, is sovereign, and 
Some of this with respect to bighorn was brought to light almost exactly a year ago. And for those, the listeners who are residents or have paid attention to the monolith that sprung to a lot of light and attention and went viral across the world. So the monolith was discovered by a state of Utah flight that was surveying bighorn sheep. Now you asked about the Navajo Nation and their bighorn sheep. So I also work with the Navajo Tribal Wildlife Authorities. And so last December, so a couple of weeks after the monolith discovery, we were flying in a helicopter on the San Juan River on the Navajo Reservation. The state of Utah was flying helicopter just north on the north side of the San Juan River. Each entity, the Navajo Nation, state of Utah um, biologist flying for bighorns. And that caused all of us to land helicopters and to think, hmm, we need to coordinate these flights. Well, why do we stop there? Why don't we coordinate bighorn sheep management? And so we've opened some avenues, we're hoping, so that there will be more fertile discussions on how to do things a little bit better with respect to bighorn sheep. So interesting. You started talking about recreation and just human presence in the area and potential impacts on the bighorn sheep herds and populations that we have here. And so I was wondering if you could break down for me, what are you going to be studying and how and where, if you can divulge that, are you going to be studying these kinds of questions? So this is our third year of a project. We have help from the state of Utah their Division of Wildlife Resources, who have been very gracious in terms of helping connect me with their local biologists. And we're also working with Bureau of Land Management, also working with Park Service. All right. One of the questions in my mind is this. To what extent do bighorn sheep habituate? If they habituate well, then do we worry about them? For instance, think about the last time you might have been to Yellowstone or Rocky Mountain National Park, or the deer in your backyard. You're looking at them, do they respond? Well, maybe not. Maybe they're calm around humans. Maybe they get used to humans. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is, and people have said to me, hey, I don't see any bighorns here, so maybe we're not disturbing them because they're not here. But of course, if one goes deeper on that question or on that thought, well, maybe they're not there because they've been so disturbed that they've left. And now they're in another place where they don't have access to their preferred food. So what we're trying to do is to get a better handle on how disturbance might affect especially pregnant females because pregnant females are the key to the future. If we don't have pregnancy and raise juveniles, we don't have a future for bighorns. So taking a deep breath, then I'm gonna go slightly deeper. So Christina, you asked, how are we doing our work? So we have three different areas we're working in Utah. The area in and around Moab, and this is where we have the best information on human visitation and human use. And human use can be broken down lots of ways. We also have another study area to the northwest of Green River, about 75 miles from here. And sheep in the San Rafael Swell, where people mountain bike, where people dirt bike, where there's some wilderness study areas, we know less about those sheep, but we're also monitoring the disturbances there. So we have a gradient, more intense visitation 
potential habituation here in the Potash Moab area, less so San Rafael Swell. And then our third study area, the most remote, is about 25 miles northwest of Hanksville. And that area is further off the radar, but there are bighorn sheep there. And so those are the least disturbed, and they serve a bit more as a control. Can you explain how you ask your questions? What do you, how do these studies work? All right, so how are we trying to find this out? So we have both radio-collared and non-radio-collared animals, and those are, are, and sorry to sound like a scientist, but our sampling unit, I can say it differently, and that's what we're watching, animals. And so we look at the responses of animals when there are no people around, when there's no disturbance, and we do this with spotting scopes, and we do this from sometimes half a mile or three quarters of a mile away. So we're not disturbing the animals either. And then at times we just wait. And so we'll be out there for part of a day, maybe eight hours, hoping that something else will change. Maybe somebody's hiking by, maybe there's uh, mountain bikes going by, maybe somebody in a Jeep is going by. And so we gauge how they respond. But of course, if they're on cliffs, if they're on the flat, or if they're in big groups, if it's windy, if there's no food, if there's food, all these things, as a scientist, we have to take into account. So we do that. But then we also, if we're not getting sufficient information, one of my techs or I will walk toward an animal and just try to mimic the behavior of whatever it seems to be going on. But the other things we have going on is that because some of our animals are um, satellite collared, we can look and see where they are on weekends when there's more traffic or more disturbance, middle of the week when there's less, and we can start to ask, oh, do they avoid roads more? Do they avoid dirt roads more? Maybe there is no avoidance at all. So that's what we're trying to do. And to go slightly deeper, think about if you've ever been on a treadmill. What happens if you're on a treadmill and you're running, you're breathing harder. And then what if you change the incline, then you're breathing harder. So remarkably, people have trained bighorn sheep and domestic sheep to run on treadmills. And so we know how much oxygen intake they're using and how hard they're breathing and what their pulse rates and what their heart rates are. And so we can convert these then using mathematical models, energetic models, so they're really called bioenergetic models, to calculate what the costs of flight are. And because we're in the field, we know what the topography is, we know what the slopes are like, and we know how far they're going and the speed to which they're running. And so we have a variety of different techniques available to us to make some inferences. For those who don't want to wait for the end of the study to see if, you know, what our impacts might be on bighorn sheep and want to potentially be proactive when they're out there recreating. Are there things that people can and should be aware of when potentially in bighorn sheep habitat about how to respond and, and act? That's a great question. <laughs> people should certainly enjoy all the wildlife. Obviously, if you keep pushing and pushing 
up closer and closer, the animals are going to run. So try not to do that. But taking photographs from a good distance, setting up and just watching, you know, plopping down a chair and watching for a couple of hours at a distance where the animals don't seem to be alarmed. That's what people should do. They shouldn't keep approaching. If they have dogs, pull their dogs immediately. I mean, all of these large animals that are feeding on vegetation, they've learned dogs, coyotes, bobcats, cougars, those are threats to them. And so that would be the one precaution. The next would be just use your good common sense. Just don't keep pushing towards an animal. Well, Joel, thank you so much for this interview and for taking the time. And I think we're definitely going to want to have you back on when you have the results from your study, because I know a lot of people are going to be really interested. Christina, thank you. Um, Science Moab, thank you. And KZMU rocks. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.